Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning. This is Bloomberg Surveillance with Tom Keen and uh, the only one who's missing is David Gura today. I'm Michael McKee sitting in for David, who is on assignment. He will be back tomorrow for those of you who are worried about him. He's uh, just uh, doing some uh, very key interviews out there in TV land and radio land. Uh, this morning, we are following the China downgrade. Moody's uh, knocks him down a peg. Uh, no major impact. The Chinese stock market finished up by a tenth. Uh, the Shanghai composite up by... Uh, about a tenth of a percent overnight. Uh, futures in the U.S. are mixed at this point. S&P futures unchanged. Dow futures down by four points. NASDAQ futures up by five. So no real direction there. And uh, that's going to be a theme here with our first guest in just a moment. I mentioned we are starting the day without real direction. Uh, futures are mixed. And our first guest, Mike uh, Wilson, is uh, chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Uh, you sort of summed that up in your most recent note when you said, well, we're past earnings season, we got to figure out what we're going to trade on next. Um, Is there a theme to look for here beyond the general what the heck is going on in Washington uh, thing that we're going on with that that we have all the time? Yeah. Well, I think the the next catalyst is the last catalyst. It's just continuation of the same, which is that the next two quarters, we're very confident about where earnings are in terms of estimates and the achievability of those. So give an example, Q1 in the U.S., we did about we'll do about 15 percent year over year growth. In Q2, we're only, you know, the, the consensus now is only looking for about 6.8% year-over-year growth. And that's with a backdrop where we're, we're pretty confident that nominal GDP is going to accelerate sharply. We could see nominal GDP in 2Q in the U.S. between 5 and 6% as things snap back. So that's your proxy for sales growth, which is almost as high as the expected earnings growth. So that's just an easy bar to get past. And so once again, we're being distracted by the news of Washington or the latest political event and, you know, the markets are consolidating. Look, we should have sold off much more at some point in the last six or seven weeks, given all the events that have transpired. And we did not. To me, that's a very constructive backdrop. It's a consolidation. You don't think uh, that the risk or do you think the risk is still out there? When you look at a P.E. for the S&P of 21, um, it's not near the records we saw in, in the past, but it is significantly higher than the average uh, the the idea that we could see a sell-off still out there? Well, we have a little different view on that. So last, uh, you know, we've talked about earnings, but the, the other story that's going on is we are getting multiple expansion this year. Uh, so we look at it a little differently. We think you know, we're trading 17 and a half times right now, forward 12-month estimates of about 137, 138. And those numbers are likely going up over the next two quarters. Our, our thesis has been for a while that equity risk premiums are now finally normalizing, much like other risk assets. And if, if we just get to a normal equity risk premium in the U.S., 
we should trade 19 times. And how do we get there? That's 250 on an equity risk premium, which is normal for the last 100 years, plus a 275 10 year, which is five and a quarter, and that's 19 times. So 19 times, you know, call it a 140, 142 number, which we think is very visible over the next sort of six months, is something the market should start to think about. So we, we think there's meaningful upside, not just a couple percent, but meaningful upside. Mr. Keene has joined us from the television set. And, Tom, I point out that uh, Mike is looking for a 275 tenure. We're at 228 yeah. this morning. There's some distance to go. Yeah, some distance to go, but with curve flattening that we've seen in the last couple days uh, as well. We'll do that within our data checks this morning. But as Mike mentioned, I'm pretty quiet. Nice to have you here, Michael. We have to find time within the morning to speak Denver Broncos football. You know, Why? Well, exactly. <laughs> That's what they would say in Denver. Good morning on Sirius XM Channel 119 uh, in Denver. Uh, Michael Wilson with us with Morgan Stanley. Michael, I want to go to the great secrets of Morgan Stanley, which are in your file. You are carrying a binder file that my father used in 1958. This is, folks, you have to see this. I'm going to take a photo of this and put it out. <laughs> On Twitter, what what is in your file? What do equity strategists carry around with them? I got this from a guy named Clarence Beeks. Does that mean anything to you? No, it's a, this is a cheap version of a of a of a fold. It's lighter. It's paper. I can throw it away, and and if I if I'm feeling fancy, I can get a new one uh, pretty 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 quickly. I know it's great. It's a, such a, it's a massive throwback. We're looking at off folks at this flexible one of those off red brownish files. files. I think Tom Hanks used yeah. that in you know. Tinker, t- whatever the spy movie was he had a couple years ago. Yeah. What do you read at Morgan Stanley? What forms your equity opinion? Yeah, so we, we actually, uh, you know, we, I try to stay current on everything, not just what's going on within the four walls of Morgan Stanley, because quite frankly, you know, we don't have all the answers. Uh, and we, you, have to be, you have to be, you know, wary of getting uh, groupthink. So the, the advantage that we have is we're global. We have strategists and economists all over the world. We meet frequently. We talk regularly. We email. Yeah. Uh, but we, but I, I read everything, Tom. I mean, I ha- you have to stay current. You're, you're well-informed. What's the well group think too. right now? What's the group think that scares you right now? Well, I think, you know, we were early last year on the idea that the, you know, global economy had a recession in 15. And so 16 was a recovery year. And so we've been, uh, we, we were early on that call. We've gotten more. Uh, I would argue uh, conviction in that call that it's more synchronous in nature mm-hmm. now that we're getting not just right, uh, GDP growth, but we're getting a little bit more inflation, not runaway inflation. And that really has given us confidence that nominal GDP, you know, is now at a more sustainably higher level, which is critical in a world that's over levered. And so the risk is, is that we have been right. Uh, and that we now are, you know, we're looking for the self you know, affirming data points. Okay. So we got to be very, uh, just cognizant that we don't overstay our welcome because markets, you know, eventually will uh, have a tougher time. When you uh, when you look at what the the group think is, how often do you step back and say they're right? I mean, <laughs> there's a reason the group is thinking this way. I mean, how much weight do you put on trying to be contrary or worry about what uh, other people are thinking? You know, that's that's a great question, Michael. The uh, I've learned, you know, I spent four, the last four years I've spent in our wealth management area. Prior 20 years was in the institutional world. And then the biggest advantage of being in that world was not being as easily distracted by the noise. So I've learned to kind of not get such a itchy trigger finger when, you know, things are working and your call is right. You have to let things run a little bit. And quite frankly, I think the reason why a lot of institutional uh, managers have had struggled the last seven or eight years is because they haven't been willing to stay with their 
investments, the, their, their thought process. They've been too willing to trade it, to, to kind of move in and out of things. And quite frankly, there's been some terrific uh, you know, longer-term themes in the last seven or eight years if you, if, you, if you could have captured it. Well, defend for me the idea of buy and hold. I'm sure you saw the Wall Street yeah. Journal story yeah. this week. This is the quants are taking over, and that's trade in and out as fast as you can. Well, I think, and I think therein lies the opportunity. So the two advantages, the two... I would argue advantages that are still out there right now are uh, sort of liquidity and time. Uh, and, and actually, individual investors or wealth owners have those advantages. We don't, you know, individuals don't need to perform every day or every month or even every year. Uh, and so the, the idea that buy and hold went out of style in sort of 2002 after the you know, tech crisis is, is classic behavioral economics 101, right? Everybody wanted to be buy and hold in the 90s when it's exactly when you should have been thinking about, you know, maybe being a bit more tactical as we were going into a secular bear market. But of course, now we're in a secular bull market and uh, everybody wants to be a trader. And the reality is, is that this is a time to be more of a buy and hold mentality, not, not because the world's perfect place, mm -hmm. But because the, the, the compound returns tax well, uh, deferred is the best way to be. I'm putting this on in Twitter, and there's a massive global viral support for the Pendaflex indexed expanding files letter craft <laughs> January to December index, 12 pockets each, $16.49. It's no, it comes in, it's called Wilson Red <laughs> at Staples. Anyways, Michael Wilson with us, and we will continue with a smart discussion on the equity uh, markets as well. For Michael McKeon, Tom Keen. Michael McKeon for David Gurr. Where's David today, Michael? He's is on he, assignment, as he's the on assignment? would have it. Okay, he's on um, assignment. I've, uh, I was uh, fascinated by that Tiffany news, and um, you live right by there. You're not shopping. Yeah, I, no, but I went, through, I, I went through the entire press release, and thank you, Tiffany's, for writing a press release in English. It's really quite good, their earnings report. And I believe I saw no mention of the Trump effect on Fifth I, Avenue. I was just going to do yeah. that. I, I'm curious, because, of course, yeah. uh, for those of you who don't live in New York, Trump Tower is literally next door yeah. to Tiffany's, and uh, you can't get near um, the place. It's better than it was. It. It's it's better than it was. But I don't believe I saw like a single line comp sales at Fifth Avenue or, yeah. or you know, lower, et cetera. But, but nevertheless, it's there. And then Gucci's wondering if on the other side. An impact on, on the Yeah, it had a great sales. impact at the Keene household. Michael Wilson with us with Morgan Stanley on the equity markets. How do you advise, and not about individual stocks, but you're with, with your wealth management people or even institutional, and they go, look, I just need to own four stocks, Apple, Amazon, and name two others. You know, this isn't in Graham, Dodd, and Cottle, is it? I mean, <laughs> Amazon's not in Graham, is it? Yeah, I don't think it would qualify as a value uh, stock the way... Uh... But is it a value given the growth that's out there? Well, look, I'm not going to comment on Amazon specifically, but I mean, I would I would say that uh, the secular growth stocks that have done so well, there's a whole cohort of them. Uh, you know, look, this is the world that we are in, in a world that's been starved for growth. The market has bid up uh, very fast-growing companies that can grow organically with or without an economic backdrop that's conducive for growth. And then going back to what we were talking about last hour on the dividend payers, right? So that's the barbell that's been working. Uh, and uh, the reality, though, is that the, the breath in the market has been much better than what yeah. people might think. Okay, to go back, Mike, on television, we said Verizon at 12 or 13 times earnings, Colgate Pomalo of a nifty 50 at 25, 26 times earnings. I'm going to center tendency Amazon at 160 times earnings, 160. Wow. Well, <laughs> uh, it, it has been a good run for uh, 
Jeff Bezos and company. Um, but you got to wonder how your suggestion, Michael, that uh, with nominal growth picking up and still room to run uh, in terms of uh, multiples, um, we should see more breadth develop than we've had. Yeah, but I want to go back to that because the breadth has actually been quite good. Uh, it's just that the the you know the, the leaders have been extraordinary. Uh, and and let, let's go back to two thousand. Like the New York Marathon, where you got four guys from Kenya who are right. an hour ahead of everybody. Yeah. But you still ran a good race, Mike. Yeah. That's okay. You know, so but you know, and that's what kind of what's going on is that there are a lot of stocks running a good race. There are some stocks that are running a ridiculous race. Uh, and they have they have goosed the returns. But if you took those stocks out, the returns this year would be quite good for the for the overall market. And and I also go back to the breadth of the of the broader equity market, not just in the U.S. but globally. The, the the signal from the global equity market is, I think, confirmation of this idea that this is a global economic and earnings recovery. It's not about the four stocks. This is not 1999. Let's put it that way, where there truly were only the TMT area that was working and everything else was going down, or 2015 when it was extraordinarily narrow and there was an outright recession in the old economy. Let's talk about 2016 just real quick. Um, this is you know this is what happens when we come off the recession. Those stocks that we were just mentioning, the the fast growers, uh, they they underperformed uh, significantly, and the value cyclical areas like financials, industrials, materials, really outperformed. We think there's another leg of that, uh, probably in the second half of this year, as people get comfortable, particularly the fixed income investors get comfortable that growth is not rolling over, that it's actually maybe even accelerating again in the U.S. And then do you see? age spots start to develop? Or is it too hard to know, given the uncertainty with what's happening with fiscal policy in the U.S. and uh, monetary policy in Europe? Well, I think the things that we, we're looking for to tell us that we're getting close, it's getting more dangerous, right, would be credit spreads is probably a good thing to watch. The yield curve, as we mentioned earlier, Tom, is not flat yet. It's still got, you know, 80 basis, 90 basis points of steepness to it. And that's okay. That's a decent environment. Go back in time and look right. at look at the periods when you had about 90 basis points after a big flattening. That was actually a pretty good yeah. time to own stocks. Michael Wilson, thank you for joining us today. Television or radio, he is a chief equity strategist from Morgan Stanley with decades at the firm, uh, taking a more fundamental view of these equity markets. Truly one of our most valuable guests, Stanley Collender of uh, Corvus uh, MSL uh, Group, on the budget, on his expertise of what the Hill actually does with your tax dollars. Stan Collender, Michael McKee wants to dive into the budget, uh, but I've got to ask about CBO. I keep uh, uh, refreshing CBO, waiting for that scoring, which we will see today. Do you have a guesstimate of when we'll see the actual health care scoring by CBO? I, my guess is uh, later this afternoon, Tom. I would stop refreshing for a couple hours. I um, I don't want to jump in here and sound like an expert, but uh, but you, you will. You are, but yeah. I will. No, I the CBO, the CBO actually said they will put it out this afternoon okay, on, on, me. on their blog. Um, they are going to um, release it in the afternoon. It says well, it doesn't say what. Didn't okay. I? Didn't I just say that? Yeah. Well, that's okay. because, that's why we pay you the big, can I go, big bucks. Can I just go home? Why you? Can I just you know, leave now and let Colin <laughs> host the show? Stan, what is the scoring actually going to say? What are we going to see? Well, look, I, I, I don't, I, I didn't ask, and I, and I don't know precisely what they're going to say. It's going to be an update of the scoring they did of the previous version, 
And there are two things to watch. There'll be two numbers that are important. One is the impact on the deficit. I'll talk about that in a second. And the second is how many people will be thrown off health, will lose their health care coverage because of this. Um, the first number, the deficit number, is important because if it doesn't uh, reduce the deficit by $2 billion, uh, then it won't comply with the reconciliation instructions, and the House will have to take another vote on this, which it probably can't do and pass. But there's so not, that, is, that's not going to happen, right? I mean, the, the last scoring um, found it would save $150 billion. So, I mean, they got 148 to play with. Um, yeah, look, they're, 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 they're close. Uh, but we don't know what the impact of the changes that the, uh, the House made in the, in the second version. So it, this, is, this is the big, the big thing that everyone's holding their breath on, because the House won't be able to repass this a second time. But the political number that's going to be more important is the second one, and that's, that's the one how many people are likely to lose their health care coverage because of this change from Obamacare. Uh, if it's if it's around the twenty or twenty four billion that, uh, that we had the first time, uh, it's going to be a real political problem, and it's going to make life very very difficult for the Senate, and, and probably makes passage of anything, any kind of health care reform this year, much more problematic. Well, as long as we're on health care, let's stay on that subject uh, for a moment and ask where the Senate is at this point. I mean, they basically said, forget what the House did; we're going to write our own bill. Um, where are they? Uh, basically nowhere. They're they're. You know, Mike, after it's been eight years that the Republicans were screaming about Obamacare, but they didn't make any serious effort during that time to come up with an alternative. They're just dealing with that now. Uh, the Senate has got a gang of anywhere from 13 to 20 members, which is a fifth of the Senate, at any one time trying to trying to explain to uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, what they want and what they need in order to, in order to be able to vote for something. So th- these are just preliminary discussions. My guess would be, and it's just a guess, that if you see anything come out of the Senate, it won't be until after Labor Day. Now, Stan Collender with us. We're going to continue this discussion. He with a, a, a well, it's a double, I guess it's scathing squared. Collender with a scathing <laughs> note in Forbes, followed by Lawrence Summers, the former Secretary of Treasury, with an equally terse note in the Washington uh, Post. So we'll dive into the actual budget debate of yesterday. And actually, to move the story forward, to where Congress uh, may go, again, with your tax at dollars. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen, I'm going to ask a question here of Stan Collender, and then get out of the way because McKean knows a lot more about this than I do. Stan Collender, 3% growth assumptions? Are you kidding me? I'm, look, I didn't say it. Uh, this is what the administration was, is saying is uh, it's going to happen, but it, they don't say exactly how it's going to happen. It's more wishful thinking. And it's it's at least a full point. Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. It's at least a full point over what the Congressional Budget Office says is likely to happen over the next decade and what the Federal Reserve says is going to happen over the next decade. Um, and and my, Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director yesterday, said if he doesn't get 3% growth, he can't balance the budget. I guess that means we're going to have a much bigger deficit than anyone had any, anyone's projecting right now. Uh, let's unpack a little bit of this. Uh, the... The interesting thing, to, I mean, you, you and I are old enough, uh, we, we won't say how old we are, but I don't remember a presidential budget being delivered to Capitol Hill that wasn't considered dead on arrival. It, it's more a political statement about what they want. Um, and so I don't uh, quite get the fixation with the balanced budget in the sense that uh, Mulvaney is not a dumb guy, and he has to know that this thing is is. A, jury-rigged um, 
kind of joke in terms of some of the, the things, the, the accounting gimmicks they use, which a lot of people, including Bloomberg News, have written about. So why do they do that? I mean, why, why, what's the motivation here? Why don't they just uh, do a realistic budget? Um, look, the last realistic budget I can remember was Gerald Ford when he was predicting that the economy was going to, GDP was not going to grow. And he got widely uh, criticized for it, for saying, how can you predict that it's not going to grow and not come up with a plan to make it grow? Um, the president promised a balanced budget during the campaign. He promised economic growth of three, four. I think at one point he said it could even be 5%. Um, so this is the, you got to look at this budget. You're right. It's a political statement. you got to look at what the administration yesterday did essentially as a Trump political rally on paper. It's just a, a play to the base to say, see, we did what we're doing, what we told you we were going to do. I don't think anybody takes it seriously. I mean, uh, what struck me about it is it, the president appointed a, a Tea Party congressman as OMB director, and he got a Tea Party document. The real news here is that uh, the people like Mick Mulvaney and, and the Freedom Caucus believe that government is too big. So the document says, here's what you do about it. You cut funding for everything and you make it go away. Yeah, except that the real news, actually there are a couple of pieces of real news, but the real news is they predicted, they put out a, a Freedom Caucus budget that was widely and resoundingly and bipartisanly rejected yesterday. Uh, you, even, you even had senior Republicans in the Senate said, not going to happen, we're not going to pay any attention to it, let's move on. So, I mean, this was a pretty bad defeat yesterday, a failure for the Freedom Caucus budget and for those who think that we've just got to get the government down into, into minuscule levels and 1% you know, growth rates and those types of things. Oh, look, the second piece of news was that this is the first time in my memory, and I, I will not give my age either, but it's at least 40 years since I've been working on the budget. First time that I can remember the president not being in the country when his budget was revealed. Usually the president wants to, t to have a press conference and take a victory lap for what, what was proposed, and that didn't happen yesterday. And the third thing is the Treasury Secretary was nowhere to be found uh, on, on this budget. Usually the Treasury Secretary is part of the unveiling of the president's budget uh, because presumably taxes are a relatively big part yeah. of it. So it looks like this administration has, has walked away from its own budget almost from the moment it was submitted. Okay, but that goes back to Mike's question. Why did they do this budget if the administration just walked away from it? I'm baffled. Well, they, 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 they did it just to put out the equivalent of a campaign brochure. Uh, they'll point to it all. Has anyone ever done that before? Have you seen that in your, what is it, 80-year history in Washington? 132, but thank okay, you. Thank you. Um, right, I, Benjamin I Harrison, I understand. I use dynamic scoring. Uh, for to, to come up with my age. Um, you, look, every president's budget is at least partly a political statement. Uh, it's, it's usually all a part political statement, part accounting document, that is part governing document. This one is almost entirely political. Uh, I've seen that a lot, it's particularly two of the final budgets or the first budgets of, of presidents. Um, but it's you know, unusual to get it's unusual to get a political document given to a Congress yep. of your own party that you expect to, to act on it. What's the why? That if we state it's a political document, why do it? It's for it's for re-election purposes. It's to reassure the base. Um, it, it 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 has very little to do with actually governing or expecting Congress is going to implement or adopt and implement what the president proposed. This is just the equivalent of a political platform during the campaign. All right. So you said um, we move on to what's next. So what is next? Does this have uh, a negative effect on the effort to pass a 2018 budget resolution and therefore get tax reform? 
Well, it, it, the the answer is yes. Um, it, it 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 did two things. First of all, it, it created a, a big wedge between House Republicans, basically the Freedom Caucus folks, and Senate Republicans who have already rejected the Freedom Caucus budget. Um, that's going to make it very difficult for the two sides, the House and Senate Republicans, to come up with a budget resolution this year. It was always going to be difficult, but this made it more difficult yesterday. Uh, Mike, as you just suggested, if there's no budget resolution, there won't be any tax reform this year because they're going to need a budget resolution to do reconciliation. There's that word again. That would prevent a a filibuster from being used on tax reform (laughs) in the Senate. Uh, It also sets up uh, the likelihood of a uh, government shutdown in October. Okay, Stan Collender, let's leave it there. Thank you so much again. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. A few minutes this morning with Francisco Blanche of Bank of America Merrill Lynch here on Hydrocarbons right now. Okay, Vienna... There's Vienna, there's Vienna 1, Vienna 2, Vienna 8. How, how important is this Vienna versus the last Vienna or the next Vienna? Well, uh, Tom, I think, I think it's actually a lot less important uh, than previous uh, meetings because it's been telegraphed now for, uh, for several weeks, and, uh, and, and I think the outcome is pretty clear. We're going to get either a, a six- or a nine-month extension of the deal, which in my mind is, is – uh, the market, the the, the market, okay. the outcome market is expecting. So, so no change there. Your range bound, downside risks, gloom and doom, our strong dollar, shell technology, and another price war. Let's go to the drama. Are we going to have a price war? I don't think OPEC can afford a price war, Tom. Uh, I think if OPEC goes for another price war, uh, their uh, budgetary position, whether it's Saudi or others, is going to be is going to be uh, severely impaired. So, I don't think they can really afford it. Um, and equally. I don't think they can really afford another big cut because uh, it will force them to a permanent uh, market share loss, which will also impair them uh, uh, fiscally over a, over a three to five year window. So their best course of action is to stay where they are. We got uh, West Texas fifty one forty five this morning, Brent fifty four nineteen. So uh, has this deal sort of created a a balance in the oil markets just enough? to bring enough fracking in to keep prices stable, but not enough to bring enough, to bring enough production in that uh, prices are going to fall again. Well, I think that's, that's kind of OPEC's uh, uh, target, if you like. Um, and I, I, think, I think what we are likely to see is uh, spot prices continuing to rise. And we think maybe we'll be close to $60 a barrel by the summer. 
uh, for Brent. Uh, so we look at another five, six dollar uplift in prices, uh, but we think that the the longer dated prices, prices for oil in 2019 uh, and even uh, December 2018, will keep moving lower as more hedging activity comes into the market. Uh, so yeah, we're we're moving into a more of an equilibrium, I would say, and and part of it is really uh, this whole inventory normalization process uh, to create a, a buffer between supply and demand, right? I mean, which which we haven't had for for the last yeah. year. Thank you uh, for coming in. Thank you. We got, we got to leave it there. It's just too short today. Can you come back for a longer time? Absolutely. Five, more six, time. seven blocks. You know, <laughs> two or three hours. Francisco yeah, Blanche with no Bank, Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Always interesting, and particularly with the move over from hydrocarbons into the other, uh, 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 other parts of commodities as well. The lady from William and Mary, Mary Jo White, with an esteemed career in law, was selected to take over uh, the uh, herding of cats at the Securities and Exchange Commission. She did that for, call it four years. She's the 31st chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, Attorney White joins us now. Chairman, wonderful to speak to you uh, this morning. When you were making light talk, about the SEC now. What is your biggest worry? First, great to be with you. I mean, I think the biggest worry from the, well, from the SEC's perspective of getting its job done is what what happens to it in the way of resources. I mean, you know, clearly an issue that, you know, one, you know, must continue to worry about is to make sure that the systems that underlie our, you know, electronic markets, uh, you know, really work seamlessly. So I spent a lot of time uh, doing that, uh, making some changes, yeah. making some enhancements when I was chair. One of the issues, and we've seen it within our Bloomberg reporting, is the budget. I guess CBO is going to come out with health care analysis today, and the president dropped a budget. I saw one Democrat senator who took a photo for Twitter of the new budget in the wastebasket. Mm-hmm. How is the budget of your SEC? Did you leave the SEC with a depleted organization? Well, the SEC, I think, was comparatively treated quite well by uh, Congress, the appropriators. But, you know, like I think most of the financial regulators uh, that aren't self-funded, unlike the Fed and the banking regulators, which are self-funded, really significantly under-resourced for the really very vast array of responsibilities that Congress has given the SEC. So, you know, we were in comparatively good shape when I left, but still significantly under-resourced. When I look at what you do, so many people look at the SEC as the police officer of bad people within the financial system of the United States. And the considered opinion is if the bad people are bad, they're going to be bad. They're going to do bad things and there's nothing Mary Jo White or Arthur Levitt or anybody else is going to do about it. What did you learn about going after bad people running the SEC? Well, of course, I'd sort of been in that business before as U.S. attorney as well, when no. I had the, you know, the criminal powers. I mean, look, I mean, the SEC is, you know, Wall Street's main cop, uh, and it needs to be a very strong cop. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going to catch, you know, every bad guy, but basically the fairness of what are the most reliable 
you know, strongest markets in the world, uh, that goes away if you're not sufficiently policing and going after the bad guys. And so one of the things that the SEC has to be sure it's doing is sort of covering the range of market participants and not only going after punishing the wrongdoer that you're looking at at the moment, but trying to send a, a deterrent message more broadly to the marketplace so you know that others will pause and not do the wrong thing when they see you know how hard the SEC or uh, the Department of Justice in some cases comes comes down on them. If you're just joining us, folks, Mary Jo White uh, with us, the former chairman and recent chairman of the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. Uh, 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 chairman, when, when, I, when I look at the SEC today and when I look at the budgets and the Trump administration, can you find a distinction between a Trump SEC and previous SECs? I don't want to get into you know, the class that you are, and you're not going to say bad things about good people under public service now. But is there a new SEC that's different than what you've seen before? Well, again, I do worry about the budget impacting the agency's ability to do its job compared to uh, how we were able to do the job, you know, when I was there. Uh, in other words, better resource, still not enough. Uh, you know, I think very highly of Jay Clayton, uh, my successor, who just took office a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so I have a lot of confidence in him, a lot of confidence in the SEC professional Can he staff. push back? Can he push back against 1600 yeah. Pennsylvania Avenue? Absolutely. I mean, the SEC is an independent agency. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done, but mm -hmm. it means that you know you do not take direction uh, from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or anybody else. Basically, I mean, you're, you obviously you know you have a different priorities depending on particularly the chairman's point of view, uh, and that's perfectly appropriate. But no, I think Jay will be a very independent SEC chair, and I think he's very focused on you know improving our our markets and in particular our public markets. You know, something we've talked to Chairman Levitt about. Uh, too many times is the basic tone of regulation in this strange word deregulation. Which yeah. way should the SEC turn? I think it has to be smart regulation. I mean, I, I think not, you know, deregulation connotes too much, uh, you know, kind of the Wild West. You do not want that in the markets. It's not good for investors. Yeah, we know Arthur industry. Levitt doesn't want that. Yeah, but no one ought to want it uh, in order to maintain the strength of our capital markets. But you do need to not overregulate. You need to try as hard as you can not to make the regulations so complex that they really either can't be complied with or that's mm -hmm. all that issuers are really, you know, really doing as opposed to focusing on, you know, growing their business and so forth. So it's a balance. But I think, yeah. it, I think regulation is – I pick that over deregulation uh, as those terms are uh, yeah. understood. There has been criticism, and of course we always turn to the senator from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who uh, really went after you at times. This would, of course, be Elizabeth Warren. How did you handle the criticisms of an anti-Wall Street or doubting Wall Street left? Where do they fit into the dialogue of the future of Wall Street and Main Street America? Like you, you, you basically, I mean, criticism comes with the territory, and the SEC in particular not only oversees Wall Street, but deals with a lot of politically charged, you know, issues uh, as well. And so you, you expect the criticism. You listen to it. I think you want to be very constructive no matter where it's coming from. Listen to it. See if you can learn something from it, do something differently, or not, as the case may be. I don't think it's healthy uh, to have, in effect, a, a class warfare against uh, Wall Street. 
I mean, you look at the activities, mm-hmm. you look at the regulation, and you regulate strongly, and you go after anybody that commits wrongdoing, whether mm-hmm. on Wall Street or Main Street or wherever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to, to, to uh, vilify Wall Street, I think, is a big mistake. Within that is our nostalgic memory. One final question, if I could, Mary Jo White, and that is the idea of Glass-Steagall. I find almost comical how small Glass-Steagall was as part of 33 and 34 legislation. I believe, folks, it was four pages. I may be off uh, by a few. Let's bring back Glass-Steagall. What's the Mary Jo White reality? I, I think it means very different things to very different people. <laughs> Thank right? you. That would be yeah, the right absolutely. answer. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> well, what are we going to see? I mean, it, 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 I mean, it I doesn't go away. It, I mean, you know, Glass-Steagall, as uh, some have in mind for it, would basically, you know, have banks be the kind of the old-fashioned, uh, you know, outdated mode, and so, as I would see it, you know, basically handling deposits. That's a very important function, obviously. Uh, highly regulated to, to keep them in their lanes. Others would see really a separation of functions where you let the the non-depository part of the function, uh, you know, have a fair amount of uh, a free reign, you know, to, to basically, you know, grow their business and, and invest in ways they can't do now. So it's not a panacea. You know, I think we're beyond, you know, that kind of simplistic decision uh, legislation. I don't think it would be a simplistic piece of legislation if it happened. One final question. Are you enjoying private practice, or is it back to the torture of law? I love private practice. <laughs> I love public service as well, but I'm I'm back at uh, Devonwich at Plimpton uh, for the sixth time in my career, uh, yeah. practicing law flat out and enjoying it a great deal. Yeah, her billable hour, folks, is like a single pitch from a Yankee starter, I believe you would say. Mary Jo White, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. She's the former chairwoman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the 31st chair of the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. She is a uh, absolutely original. President Trump put out his uh, 2018 proposed budget yesterday. Here's some of the uh, things that they proposed cutting. Uh, $12.4 billion from um, Health and Human Services. National Institutes of Health, $5.7 billion cut, including a billion cut uh, from the National Cancer Institute, $1.3 billion cut for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, Food and Drug Administration would lose $854 million over uh, 10 years. Representative Tom Cole is a Republican from uh, Oklahoma. He is a member of the House Budget Committee, and he has been a defender of NIH and other health programs uh, in the budget process in the U.S. Congress. He joins us now. Uh, Representative Cole, uh, this has to be a disappointment to you. I know even though you'd like to support a a Republican budget, a disappointment to you in terms of the meat acts they want to take to spending on health care, particularly uh, prevention and uh, disease research. Well, it's a a mixed bag, uh, to be fair. I mean, uh, this is the first presidential budget we've seen in eight years that actually comes into balance, so I like that. And uh, as a defense hawk, honestly, I favor what the president's trying to do there. In terms of the NIH, however, I think, honestly, they're making a mistake. Uh, National Institute of Health, Center for Disease Control, are critical in defending the country every bit as much as the Pentagon is, quite frankly. You're much more likely to die in a pandemic than a terrorist attack. 
So having a biomedical research infrastructure that not only protects Americans, but over time also brings down the cost of health care. I mean, this country spends, for instance, about $259 billion a year looking after uh, patients with Alzheimer's and uh, dementia. And, uh, you know, it's going to move up uh, as people continue to live longer and longer uh, periods of time. And you've got to do something to mitigate that cost. And the best Alzheimer's research in the world is going on at the National Institute of Health. So, again, uh, I think uh, you don't want to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. And when it comes to investment uh, at the National Institute of Health and the Center for Disease Control, those are critical investments. Good morning, Congressman Cole. Excuse me here. I was just researching someone you know well. I believe Frank Keating's name is being tossed around to run a beleaguered Federal Bureau of Investigation. You worked for Governor Keating as Secretary of State in Oklahoma. How wise would President Trump be in choosing Frank Keating to be the next director of the FBI? Extraordinarily wise. Frank Keating uh, is an exceptional public servant. He's a former FBI agent himself. He was a a special, he was a a U.S. attorney. He was also the uh, number three person, associate attorney general in the Reagan Justice Department. So, uh, his experience, his law enforcement background is really uh, quite remarkable. He's a person of unquestionable integrity. What, and, was, it like, uh, what was it like working for him day to day? We know Frank Keating well. Best job of my life, to tell you the truth. I oh, mean, really? Oh, come on. Come on. No, no, I'm not, I don't kid you. I mean, I, uh, you know, I used to tell him, uh, I actually saw him last week. We stay in very close contact. But uh, for six years, I talked to him every day. And except for the two weeks around the Oklahoma City bombing, I laughed every time I talked. He's witty. He's quick. He's funny. Uh, he's in private, what he seems to be in public. Uh, you know, I just had wonderful, wonderful relationship with him and tremendous confidence in him. And he really dramatically moved the state forward. And he showed during the Oklahoma City bombing how he could perform on a national stage. I mean, he is unbelievable. Uh, and uh, frankly, he's married to somebody equally unbelievable in Kathy Keating, who is a remarkable figure in her own right. Uh, there is a headline crossing right now that the Trump administration, according to CNN, hitting the reset button in the search for an FBI director. Maybe oh, because they did were, I they were looking. No, I think they were looking at Joe Lieberman and a lot of blowback from uh, members of uh, the Senate and the Democratic Party against him. So maybe Frank Keating's uh, will come up. Uh, wow. We could talk about that forever, but uh, since we only have a few more minutes with you, let me quickly ask you about what we're expecting from the CBO this afternoon. I don't think you'll have to revote. Uh, <laughs> I think you, I, I would think be surprised. I think you'll get enough deficit reduction. Yeah. But if <laughs> if you see an increase in the number of people uninsured, how big a weight is that going to be around yeah. Republicans uh, next when they run for re-election next? Well, year? it depends on frankly why there. I mean, if you are not in the insurance market because you choose not to be, and that was sort of lost in the discussion over the last CBO score. What they're basically saying, if you remove the mandate, a lot of people won't buy this stuff. Well, you know, that should tell you something right there. I mean, they have even had people on yeah. Medicaid getting out of Medicaid, which cost you essentially nothing. So, uh, you know, I think uh, it ought to be part of the discussion, but it shouldn't be decisive. Yeah. And it's, again, CBO numbers are it's a quirky system they have, and uh, they're not always reliable. As a matter of fact, they, they quite often aren't. Yeah. But, you, you know, they're the best we can do. But uh, I would never uh, take them as gospel. Congressman, we need to continue this discussion. We would hope to do it in Washington with Michael McKee, David Gurr, myself. Tom Cole is from Oklahoma. Thank you particularly for those comments on the former governor, Frank Keating, as well.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.